be seated. Well, I was going to make a joke, and then I realized I forgot to turn my microphone on, and so I joined in the comedy of errors. I was going to say it's good to have the amateur hour done, <clears throat> and now the professional's here. I walked up, and the Lord struck me and realized, you didn't turn your microphone on, so I'm part of the amateur hour. And you are as well this morning. I'm glad you're here on this Sunday morning, glad that you are out and in your place. It is the Christmas season, and we are certainly glad for all that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews in chapter number 12. We've been looking at our superior Savior. Last week we looked at the fact that He is superior in His people. Those who know Jesus Christ, those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who don't just have a a profession but a possession of Jesus Christ, uh, we have talked about that and we understand that it is by faith we are saved. It is this morning then that we see that Christ is superior in His path. And we're going to talk about what that means simply to say this morning, each of us in this life is on a journey. We're either on a journey to heaven or we're on the pathway in the journey to hell. Jesus talks much about the pathway of destruction. He says, narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, but broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction. And so each of us is on a pathway. And what we're going to study this morning is not so much entering the pathway, though we'll briefly mention it. We're going to talk about this morning what that pathway is like. Hebrews chapter 12 is a very, very practical chapter of Hebrews. It comes on the heels of the principles, and it moves us in the practical. We are superior as a people, not because of us, but because of Christ who lives in us. And we are superior in our journeying in this life, not because we have a, a higher moral ground to stand on, but because we have a superior Savior who gives us a clear direction and clear pathway. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll read the first four verses, and we'll jump into the preaching this morning. The Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Father, help us this morning as we come to the truth of the Word of God. Help us to understand the path and the multifaceted path that it is given to us this morning by the writer of Hebrews. May your Holy Spirit guide us and guard us. May we have our understanding illuminated by His very presence. Father, if we can understand what we're supposed to be doing, the journey that we are on, we will be more effective Christians. And we will make a much greater impact in this world. Bless us, I pray, in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. Once we begin living as His people, chapter 11, 
then we must embrace the path that God has for us. If you are going to accept Christ by faith for the salvation of your soul, then there is a journey of sanctification that you will begin to walk. The Christian life is a journey. It is a race. In fact, he alludes to that in verse number one. It is a pathway that we must walk. Every time I come to Hebrews chapter 12 in my own personal reading, I'm reminded of Psalm 1. Here's what the psalmist writes there. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. Oh, please understand that statement. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It is that first part of the last verse of Psalm 1 in verse 6 that the Lord knows the way of the righteous that the writer of Hebrew wants us to know this morning. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Christ is superior in His path that He has for His people. It is His way, not our way. It is His path, not our path. I'm reminded of what Solomon, the son of the great psalmist, wrote in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy path. As we come to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, we're going to find words like look, consider, see. Each of these tells us in this chapter that there is a pathway that we must pay attention to as we walk in our spiritual journey. It is this pathway and in this pathway that Christ demonstrates his superiority over the pointless nature of life without him. One must be careful to walk in this path. We must be careful to consider and see where our steps are taking us. So let's consider and see and look at the three superior paths that Christ gives to us under the pen of the writer of Hebrews. First, there is the path of Christianity. In verses 1 through 4, we find a path of Christianity. May I submit to you, the only way you enter the path of Christianity is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews 11 has told us. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You must come by faith to Jesus Christ and the grace that He offers. In these first four verses, we have a picture of the Christian race that is run After the moment of that salvation, we note letter A, that the path of Christianity has witnesses of grace all about it. There are those who are witnesses of grace in our life. This first part of verse number one is what we focus on. It says, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. 
The great cloud of witnesses are the Old Testament and New Testament saints. At the end of this chapter, he's going to give us an intimate inner circle or progression into the salvation we have in Jesus Christ and the grace that we receive. Here he just calls them a great cloud of witnesses. It is those who inhabit that world beyond ours, those who inhabit the divine, who live in the realm where God exists, who dwell there today. This great cloud of witnesses is made up of angelic beings. It's made up of God himself. It's made up of the Old Testament saints and the New Testament believers. This great cloud of witnesses is there because of the grace of God. Their pathway is done. They now watch and witness our race on this earth, we are told. It is interesting, coming on the heels of chapter 11, we can look back as witnesses to their lives, but they look from heaven as witnesses to our life. What a joy that is. It is great comfort to know that those in heaven watch what is being done here on the earth. I have encouraged many a family at death of a loved one when that person has passed and they know Jesus Christ as their Savior with the first part of this verse in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. I've been asked many a time in that moment, Pastor, I thought everyone in heaven was just looking at Jesus and taken with him. And the answer is, most definitely that is true. But Jesus is consumed with what is going on on this earth right now, for he died and gave himself for us. Your loved ones in glory are not absent from the going-ons on this earth. They are cheering you on, in fact, according to this verse. They are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Those witnesses are there because of their faith in Jesus Christ and by His grace or the grace of God. They are there witnessing what goes on on this earth. And that is a truth that we can hold to in our Christian journey. What we are enduring is nothing different than what the Apostle Paul endured. It's no different than what Moses endured or Abraham or may I submit your loved one who may be on in glory. I doubt my grandparents, who are all in heaven today, are watching what the believers in China are doing. I'm sure they're glad for it. But I have no doubt that my grandparents are very attuned to what my parents are doing for the cause of Christ and what they've taught my sister and I to do for the cause of Christ. They are cheering us on saying, run the race with patience. It is the way God designed his kingdom. Luke chapter 16 tells us that after death, there is an awareness for the individual, whether heaven or hell. Since this planet and our race is God's special creation, it makes both logical sense and here biblical sense that the saints in glory are witnessing the events of God's plan unfold on this earth. And they, with joy, rejoice over every one of your victories. And they, with joy and comfort, Console you with your Savior Jesus Christ in every one of your failures when you come by faith and repent. The path of Christianity has witnesses of grace. And as we look back to those who have run and are thankful for them, make no mistake, the Bible is teaching us here that those who have run their race by faith are in heaven witnessing what we do here on this earth. Letter B, we find the path of Christianity has a warning about our pace. It's not just those who are witnesses of what's going on by grace, but there's a warning about how we run. You ever met somebody that got saved and, man, they were going 100 miles an hour? And about 8 to 10 weeks later, they're like, man, I'm out. 
this Christianity is too hard. Well, there's a pace to Christianity. I'm getting a little ring up here, by the way, Scott, so I don't know if you guys can help me in the back. I also have clogged ears this morning, so I'm not, it could be me, it could be, it could be the microphones, I might be loud. We find here a warning about our pace in the latter half of the verse. He says, after the comma, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The latter portion of verse 1 has two parts then. There are the weights of sin, then there is the patient endurance that we must exercise as we engage in the life that God has given to us. Let me ask this question about the weights that beset us, the sins that take us. What sins keep you from running the Christian race effectively? You know, it's going to be different for each of us. We're all going to have different answers in the privacy of our own heart before Almighty God. We're going to say, boy, this is the one thing that I struggle with, or or this is the other. Maybe it's covetousness, maybe it's pride, maybe it's lying in a deceitful tongue. Whatever that sin may be, there is a sin that is besetting to us. And we must understand in those besetting sins, those sins are weights that keep us from running at the pace God desires for us to run. There is progression in your Christian life that God wants you to have. And until you lay aside, that word, that phrase lay aside has the idea of throw it off, get rid of it, cast it out of your life. I often think when I think of that word of the old story or the the book, uh, The Lord of the Rings, and I know some of you are big avid readers, but in the book, at one point, the wizard comes to the little hobbit and he tells him to get rid of the ring, to leave it for his nephew. And he says, oh, I did. I left it on the mantle. And then he says, wait, it's here still in my pocket. And he makes the comment to the wizard, how did it get there? (laughs) He knew how it got there. He put it there. That's what we do with our sins. Oh, wait, no, it's over there. But we keep them to ourselves. We carry those weights along with us in our journey. And God says, no, no, those sins, those things that would hold you back, set them on the side. Get them out of your life. Lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily Beset us. These are our passions. These are our own ambitions and pursuits. He says, set those aside for me. I set myself aside for you. This is the path that we must walk. God doesn't want anything in our lives that will keep us from reaching the goals of successful Christian living that he has for us. By the way, he has different goals for each of us, though it's the same end, and that is glorifying him. There are things that Edward will accomplish that I will never accomplish. There's things that I will do that Zach will never do. There's things that Zach will do that you will never do. And you will do things that I will never achieve. That is not the point of the Christian life. The point of the Christian life is to set aside the things that slow us down in serving God so that we can bring most glory to him. The word weight could be easily translated hindrances here. Set aside the things that hinder you. The path of Christianity was, has witnesses of grace. It has a warning about our pace. And last, we see, let her see, that we're to be watching Christ's very face. In verse number two, we, he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That phrase despising means he took no notice of the shame. 
He didn't pay even a bit of attention that he would be shamed and mocked and beaten on Calvary's tree. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest ye in your path, in your journey, be wearied and faint in your minds. Our pathway was Jesus' pathway first. Is what the author is telling us here. What he did, we must do. There's no better example for us to look unto than Jesus Christ himself. Looking unto in this phrase is used only here in the Bible, and it means effectively that we stop looking anywhere else. That's what it means. I put in your notes, you will not find purpose in anything this world has to offer. Whether it's a relationship, a career, a personal passion or a pursuit that you have in this life, you will always find looking to those things is like looking to a vapor. On these cold December and January mornings, when you walk outside and go, that's what the Bible means when it says your life is even a vapor. When you look to these things of temporal meaning and worth, they're fleeting. And what he's saying is look unto Jesus, lay aside everything else, set aside all other ambitions and pursuits. And as you do that, you look to the one pursuit that is worth it all, and that's Jesus Christ. Phillips in his commentary says this of this particular verse, the word looking is afaro. It occurs here and only here and means looking away from all else and looking at that which fills the heart. We are going to run not because of the prize at the end, and not because so many illustrious saints have run the course in the past and have been gloriously crowned, but because the vision of Jesus Christ alone thrills our soul. Boy, that's good. The Christian pathway must lead to, through, and with Jesus Christ. The writer tells us that As we look unto him, as we watch him, we find first that he's the author of our faith. What does that mean that he's the author of our faith? It means he initiated the redemptive plan. You didn't. You know why most Christians struggle with their salvation? Because they thought they started the plan. You know, this salvation is pretty good. I did a good thing. I made a good decision. I'm pretty good in this salvation. You know, you didn't do anything in your salvation. You were the sole beneficiary of the blood of Jesus Christ. You did nothing. He's the author. You're the reader. You're the recipient. You're the blessed one. From him, the blessed one. The author of our faith is then followed by the finisher of our faith. What does that mean? He earned the redemption needed. You didn't. It was his shed blood and his victorious resurrection that provides for you the power over sin that we sung of earlier. The penalty is paid in his blood and the power comes in the resurrected life. That's where your victory over sin comes. He is both the author and the finisher of your faith. But in verse number three, he gives us a third one. He is also the encourager of our faith. He endured the hateful opposition, that is the contradiction of sinners. He endured the hateful opposition of a race that he loved as their creator so that he might become some of their redeemer. He wants all men everywhere to be saved. 
But not all men everywhere have been saved. They have rejected him. You then can joyfully endure whatever your lot in life is because Jesus Christ endured the cross for you. In fact, he gives in verse 4 this to them. You have not had to resist against blood. It has not cost you your life yet. By the way, even if your faith cost you your life, you're still not going beyond what your Savior did. Because in dying for our sin, he took on sin of the whole world in his body. You're just dying in faith in Jesus Christ. There's a great encouragement from the one who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Of this whole passage of verses 1 through 4, Warren Wearsby, the great author, said this, Jesus' battle against sin took him to the cross and cost him his life. Most of us will not run on that course. It will probably be our task to live for him and never be asked to die for him. Consider him, he writes. Look unto Jesus. These words are the secret of encouragement and strength when the race of our own life gets difficult. He finishes by saying we need to get our eyes off of ourselves, off of other people, off of our circumstances, and get our eyes on Christ alone. There is the path of Christianity that we run. Then there is, secondly, the path of chastening. You say, well, that sounds like a wonderful Christmas morning. (laughs) We're dealing with discipline. Well, yes. Listen, if you have kids and you come to me and say, we don't ever discipline our kids, I will say to you, good luck raising a hellion. Pastor, good luck. You're raising a child of the devil that doesn't understand discipline or correction or chastening, reproof and rebuke. It's nowhere found in the pages of Scripture. Every child must be corrected. Here's what he says beginning in verse 5. And ye have forgot and, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Now, he's going to quote from Proverbs chapter 3 here. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For when the Lord for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards. Now that is a tough Bible word. Do you know what that means? You're an illegitimate child. God's not your dad is what it's saying. And not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. In other words, we respected them for making us do what is right. Shall we not much rather be be in subjection unto the Father of spirits or the God of all and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, speaking of our earthly parents. But he, God, the Father, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness or his very nature. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. It's hard to be chastened. Nevertheless. 
Afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised or who engage in it thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way or those who are sick in their sins be lost from the pathway, he says. But let it rather be healed. Don't let them be lost. Let them be healed. Every child must be corrected. If a parent won't take the time to train their child, then the parent is showing no true love for that kid. Giving your kids everything they want, moms and dad, is a recipe for disaster. And all the kids in here said, I just made my Christmas list, you jerk! (laughs) Giving them everything they want is a recipe for disaster. Don't believe me? Look at modern America. Three generations, and I don't mean like godly people doing this, but I mean as a whole of a generation. Three generations since the 60s, giving their kids everything they ever wanted and never saying no, thanks to Dr. Spock. Look what we get. A petulant society bent on its own destruction. God loves us, so he corrects us. He does so through chastening and, if need be, scourging. The word chastening is padia here. It is in the adult sense. It means whatever cultivates the soul by correcting mistakes and curbing the passions of that individual. When it comes to children or younger, the whole training and education of a child, it relates to the cultivation of mind and their morals, the employing of this purpose, its commands or ambitions, and the reproof and punishments that are necessary to bring them into alignment with the desire of the parent or authority. So the pathway of chastening, letter A, proves we are heirs. It proves that we are his children. Listen, chastening is not enjoyable. It is necessary. Without God's chastening, we learned we're not his children in verses 5 through 9. You want to know the chastening of the Lord? If you really want to know the chastening of the Lord, read the book of Proverbs, one proverb a day for an entire month. Brother Mark Byram years ago taught me that lesson uh, just in passing in conversation, and it's one that I've tried to employ. And generally now in my life, I read a proverb a day. I think he still does as well. And in the reading of a proverb a day, here's what you will find very quickly. That is the chastening of the Lord. It will tell you what wisdom would have you do. And when you read a verse, you will very quickly find out what you're not doing. And it will chasten you. Zach and I were joking in the office recently. We were reading in Proverbs chapter 28 and... I was talking about investing, and I was also making some side comments and joking about the lottery and people that play that. And I think on an offhanded way, I talked about investing in some speculative stock, and I had talked about the idea of the Proverb 28 that morning. As I was talking about it and joking about it, the Proverb that morning is, he that will be hasty to be rich will find poverty. And I thought, man, there's some good chastening in that day. It doesn't mean you shouldn't invest. The point is, if you're hasty to be rich, if that's your only motivation, you will always end up poor. There's all kinds of true chastening and wisdom from the Word of God. Chastening is not God thundering in the clouds as He did with Job, though there are Bible passages that, are, that often thunder into our lives at given moments. 
Chastening instead is the daily reproval of a mother with her children. It is wisdom itself, both chiding and correcting the foolishness or the God-rejecting nature that is within us. God has proven He loves us by providing salvation and restoring the relationship with mankind. We then are to prove we are His by accepting and submitting to the chastening that comes our way from this book. Chasten is to discipline. Chasten is disciplining with words, while scourging means to correct with the touch. Listen, if we do not heed his chastening, then God will have to reach in and touch our lives. Now, we must be careful because it is easy for us to say that circumstances and calamities are all because God is scourging us. Listen, if God is scourging you, you probably don't realize you're in that much sin. If you're really walking the path of Christianity and you've walked the path of chastening, you find the Word of God convicts you and you change. That's the point of it. The scourging is the last element that God uses. It's the last thing that He comes to. It's the last thing that He ever desires to bring into your life. But He will if He must. It's like me warning my boys to obey their mother. They need a little dad wisdom and chastening to remind them that daily mom being with them 24 hours a day, is as, her word is as good as dad's. There is a chastening and there is a scourging if it's necessary. As I said, we must not read every calamity that befalls us or someone as God scourging us. But if we are engaged in a known sin and we refuse adamantly to change our behavior, if we will not heed the chastening of the Lord then as true believers, if we are in fact his sons, he will scourge. The path of chastening proves we are heirs, but then let her be, it profits our holiness. As we continue in verses 7 and 10, we read in that passage, we see in the first part of verse 7, if ye endure chastening, in other words, if you respond submissively and obediently to chastening, if you endure it, not just sitting in the corner, tight-fisted and clenched jaw saying, oh, I wish this was over, but genuinely endure it as a biblical context of saying, I am responding every time there is light shown in my life as to where I'm wrong. If I respond in the right way, then he says, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? If you as a Christian come to me and say, God's never told me I've done anything wrong in his book then he's not dealing with you as sons because he's not, you're not his child. This book on a daily... I'm the pastor of this church, and I know that I'm not higher than you and holier than you, but if there's one person in this place you better hope is trying to live holy, it better be me. And if every day it chastens me, buddy, it better chasten you. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the ganders. It profits our holiness. He says in verse 10, for, for they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure. But he, God, chastens us for what? Our profit. That we might be partakers of his holiness. Human parents correct after their own pleasure. This means according to the way that they think is best. Our parents, my parents, disciplined me, and for my childhood it was often, by what they knew to the end that they wanted, which 
often and hopefully was to the benefit of my sister and I, and it was. But you know what? God is greater than my earthly father. He's holier and higher than him. His chastening always without fail is for my profit. In fact, that profit is that we might partake of his very nature, his holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord, he says in the book of Deuteronomy, and Peter echoes for us. If that is to be true, we are to partake of his holiness. How do we partake of his holiness? Here the writer of Hebrews saying is to receive chastening. When the word of God convicts and corrects us, we must change. We must be different because of what the word of God reveals. Don't ever resist the chastening of the Lord. Rather, respond in grace when God's Holy Spirit prompts you from His Word. The path of chastening proves we are heirs. It profits our holiness. But the path of chastening that we find here, a superior path that is only available to the Christian, to the believer who by faith has come to Jesus Christ, it provides, let us see, our healing. Sin's disease produces nothing but death. James tells us in chapter 1 of his letter, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Adam in heaven said amen when James penned that verse. He knew it in its totality. Life and living for Christ is by learning what we should and should not be doing. The only way we learn that is through the chastening of the Lord. If as a parent, a holy spiritual parent, God said, I'm just going to let you stay you. You be you. Well, why'd you get saved in the first place? Why not just say, stay a son of the devil? Because the devil says you be you because you is going off to hell. But as a son of God, as a child of God, as a son of the living God... We have to live a life that is different. And so that pathway of chastening is very important for us. When the rebuke and reproof comes from the Word of God, we must change. When we make a mistake against the law of God, we are punished. Not to our destruction, but to our instruction. It isn't fun making mistakes, he says at the beginning of verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Every kid in here that's ever gotten in trouble can say that. My sister, I'll give an aside. This was not in the early morning message. This was free to you all. Maybe I should have done it in the early morning because it's not recorded. But anyway, my sister, her whole entire life, my parents aren't here so I can speak freely. Uh, My entire life, my sister got like two spankings. From like age third grade to maybe age sixth grade, they stopped spanking me in sixth grade, and I just started losing privileges in seventh grade. I probably averaged two spankings a day, right? And some of you are aghast, like, spankings, right? I'm okay. I'm well-rounded. I'm not malformed. My parents did not spank me in anger. They did not spank me in spite. They did not spank me in rage. But when they chose to discipline me through chastening and Kyle did not answer, there was scourging that followed, and often scourging was the following. But I often remember my sister. Once that she got a spanking, she was saying, Mommy, Mommy, please, Mommy, Mommy, please, no, Mommy, 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 please. And I was in the other room, and I had done the least of the evil of that time, and it was like one of the only times. I said from my room to hers, Grow up! (laughs) 
I mean, she's a girl, or I would have said, take it like a man. But, you know, grow up! Man, I had become so used to chastening that you might say, well, it became white noise. No, it was needed noise. Trust me, it stung, and it was loud. But when it came, I stood up and said, yes, sir. The chastening was necessary. And from each of those chastenings, while my will was still bent to do my own thing, I understood there was a will contrary to mine. I understood there was something that God wanted me to do in a way that he wanted me to live. And that was the instruction of a loving father and mother that they were imploring in my life. So we understand then that it's to provide instruction. But listen, in that moment, I was not saying to my sister or wanting to say to my sister, hey, these spankings are great, just take it. I was agreeing with her. Yes, they're grievous. I mean, I used to take toilet paper and stuff it in my britches to make sure it didn't hurt as much. I mean, I did everything. I make my dad, my dad's tonight, you are giving grief. All right, back on the message. He goes on to tell us in verse number 11 this wonderful truth. Nevertheless, look, nobody likes chastening. When the preacher preaches and the Spirit of God goes... And taps on your heart's door and says, this is important, listen. That conviction that you fall under, I'm not up here going, yeah, you little devilites, I hope you get it. My job as a pastor is to lay truth in front of you. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict you and to chasten you into the path that you ought to be in. The path of chastening is one that you should covet, that you should desire with a holy desire. You should be glad for, because it provides for us the healing. Nevertheless, afterward, it, that chastening, yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It isn't fun making mistakes, but the lesson learned from that mistake and the consequent chastening from God brings into our life the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, we can actually act in a right way before God when we accept the warnings and corrections that He gives us from His Word. That's what He's telling us. This brings strength to the individual believer, but it also brings health to the corporate body of the church. Verse 12, the word wherefore, means that because of what we receive individually, we can benefit the body wholly. It means because of this chastening in our own lives and the lessons that we are learning, we can lift up out of depression and despair those who might be failing in their Christian walk. We can lift up hands and feeble knees that are, or knees that are weak. In verse number 13, it teaches us clearly that from the chastening we have received in our Christian walk, we make conscious decisions to walk in a straight path. We've all said it. Well... You know, today I'm walking the straight and narrow. Well, where do you get that from? From these verses. Because you have paid attention to what God wants, and the path of chastening has led you that way. When walking that straight path, those around us who may still be lamed by their sinful flesh are able to see what is right in our lives from the lessons that we have been taught by the Lord, and they can follow along the healthy pathway that we are walking. Notice what he says, Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. 
There is an opportunity to be health to the bones of this body when you accept the chastening of the Lord in your own life. If you try to help someone with your experiences alone, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, boy, in my life, here's what happened to me. Well, that's a good start. But here's how you finish that story if you're telling it to your children. And this is what the Lord taught me from that experience. Here's what the Bible says about that. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you marry your experience with God's word through proper chastening and correction that you have received through the years, then you can be a full help and healer to those around you. Your life can be a lesson to others. Self-awareness of God's chastening and a quiet, humble surrender to His correction provide the best possible hope for you and for the rest of the world. That's why He chastens us. That's why He chastens the believer. He doesn't chasten the unbeliever. There's no chastening for them. There's hell for them. Until they trust Christ, there's no hope for them. There is the path of Christianity that we run. Then there is the path of chastening that we walk. Finally, there is the path of consecration. From verses 14 and following to the end of the chapter, we find the idea of being consecrated. To be consecrated means to make something sacred or holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely unto God. I'm setting completely myself apart to God. What he does is he pivots and he says, look, the path of Christianity will bring to you a path of chastening. The end or the, con, uh, the equal path to that path of chastening is a path of consecration. Now, I'm going to be careful here. But if you were to say this morning, Pastor, I'm trying to always listen to God's leading and what he reveals to me from his word and how I ought to live. I'm doing that. Great. Then add to it the proactive. That is the reactive. This is the proactive. He says in verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto a mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into the blackness and darkness and tempest. He's speaking here in verses 18 through 21 of the temporal worship, that which was earthly set up in the law. And it is dark. It is depressing, to be honest. Nobody could touch it. In fact, he says in verse 20, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched that mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with the dark. So terrible was the sight of that temporal worship, that outward ritual of religion, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. I can't keep up with this. Look at verse 22. But. <laughs> what joy. Here's the pathway of consecration. But ye... You of this New Testament, you of grace, you're not coming to, you're coming to Mount Sion and unto the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are 
written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Verse 25, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. That's every Baptist preacher's favorite verse. He goes on to give us in verse 25, 6, and 7 more truth about the temporal, but in verse 28 he says, wherefore, we, the, the temporal is movable. The temporal is going to be destroyed. It literally can be shook to its very foundation and will be removed in that way. Removed in that way. In verse 28, he says, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Walking the path of Christianity and the path of chastening leads us to this final pathway of consecration. The path of consecration, letter A, takes diligence. What does it mean that I'm wholly given over to God and following Him? It means I'm diligent in what I do, what I think, and what I say. The word diligently in verse number 15 means to inspect with great detail, to go over with a fine-tooth comb. How serious do you inspect your life day by day? I think most Christians just roll out of bed, lumber throughout the day, and crash back into the bed at the end of the day saying, Whoo! Survived another one! Is that what God wants for us? Well, Pastor, you don't live my schedule. I, I know. Do you need to live your schedule? <gasps> I'm just asking. Diligence means that every choice throughout the day must have divine reflection attached to it. Without careful consideration of why and what we're supposed to be doing, we can very quickly become bitter towards God. That's what he says to us in verse number 15. If we don't look carefully after what we're doing and why we're doing it, we will very quickly become one that is bitter towards God. Why do you want me to do this, God? Here's a couple questions that often come from bitter souls. Christians who are upset that God makes them live a certain way. Questions sound like this. Why do I have to do this? Questions sound like this. What benefit is there in doing it that way? Why can't we just have a little fun in our life? I mean, come on, you only live once. YOLO! Here's one that I've heard recently. How is God bothered by little old me when there's 7 billion people alive today? God died for little old you. And that's why he cares for you. These are all bitter questions. These all are questions that defile a person, it says at the end of verse 15. The only true question is, what pleases and glorifies God in my life right now? By the way, that means your nature, your flesh, is probably going to be inconvenienced a whole lot. Any other question about making me happy and living a little for myself is simply sinful. That's kind of harsh. Well, ask Esau. That's the example he used. That's why Esau is used as the example. God equates you doing your thing your way as being a debauched prostitute. There's little ears here, Pastor. I know, it's in the Bible. Teach those little ears. Don't, don't cheat on God. He says you're a fornicator. That is a very harsh word. I'm actually cleaning it up. 
You're an ungodly person in your nature. You're profane. Esau knew the everlasting covenant that went with his birthright, that was given to him by God, not by him. He didn't earn it. He was just born. But instead of cherishing that birthright and that promise from God, he traded it. His temporal pleasures, I would say his personal inattentiveness. He was a hunter that knew how to prepare a meal, yet he came famished to his brother Jacob and said, Feed me lest I die! He was so inattentive. That's how many Christians are. They're just inattentive. His live-for-the-now mentality led him to give away God's blessing. When the time came for him to cash in on that lost blessing, he was rejected. Not because God hated him, not because Isaac hated him, but because he hated himself. His rejection led to God's rejection. This is a warning, by the way, particularly to the reader of of, of this passage, to say to them, you need to be diligent that you're not just of the law, but you're actually of grace as well. Pathway of consecration takes diligence and letter B diligence, it takes letter B devotion. Verses 18 through 21 refer to the temporal devotion that the Israelites had and that these readers were struggling with, and he pivots them to what their eternal devotion should be. And that's on the intimate relationship we have in Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful picture that unfolds in verses 22 through 24. You see concentric circles of those that lead us to the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. By the way, you also see the great cloud of witnesses from the beginning of verse 1. Look what it says in verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Sion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, that is completely in contrast to verse 18, a dark, tempestuous mountain of judgment. (laughs) You're coming to a place of grace, a place of belonging and dwelling. But notice when you come to that mountain, notice the concentric circles that you work your way in from. There is people that are there. There are relationships that we have. He says, as the writer draws the picture of ever-increasing intimate relationships that we're going to find, he says the angels are in relationship with God, but not like in a relationship that we have. You're going to come first to an innumerable company of angels. How many angels are there? A lot. I mean, he could have called 10,000 times 10,000, we're told. That's 100 million angels just in that one. I would assume they're not speaking metaphorically, but statistically. Is that all of them? Probably. Is that every one of them? I don't know. Simply put, there's a whole host of them. And it's innumerable, we're told here. But from that circle, our faith in Jesus Christ and the consecration we have through devotion, we're not devoted to angels. Angels are merely messengers. We can't worship them. He goes to another group. He said, then there's the great assembly or the general assembly of the church, the ecclesia. I personally believe this is the Old Testament saints, the called out assembly of the Old Testament that is brought forward and by their faith in Jesus Christ is their manifest. Then he says in verse 23, next there is God the Father, the judge of all. Again, our relationship, our devotion is to God, but we come to God, but the only way we can see Him is as a judge. But thankfully, that's not where we stop in our progression in this passage. Where do we go next? To the spirits of just men made perfect. I'm going to be real careful here. This is a reference to those who have died in faith in the age of grace. 
as a church family, and particularly individual families in here, we have lost people this year who fit this very description. I'm thinking of one. This morning I was thinking of another in the early hour. With Miss Judy, Earl Scott is a just man made perfect in his spirit. To you, Stephanie, David is a just man made perfect. And to each of us who have lost, Eli is sitting right in front of you. His father passed away this year. A just man made perfect. When we read these verses, we can't just run over these verses and say, oh, that's an interesting statement. The spirits of just men made perfect. This is a very intimate relationship. These are the witnesses. What we cheer on in their life and are thankful for, they are cheering on in our life and are thankful for in heaven today. What joy. The word of God does not leave us hopeless. It gives us help for our daily needs. Can I tell you, heaven's going to be a wonderfully intimate place to be in. Because there will be loved ones that we know and we get to spend the rest of eternity with. You say, that's what my devotion is in? No, it actually gets even better than that. Our devotion is not even in our loving human relationships. Where does it go? It keeps going. Another one that we go to. To the angels, to the general assembly, to the God which is the judge, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to whom? Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the new promise, grace. Oh, to see the face of Jesus. To be with him in glory. And yet, interestingly, in verse 24, there's one more too. <laughs> if someone asked you, do you love Jesus, what would you say? Yes. I tricked you. What would you say? Yes, I love Jesus. If someone asked you, what is the one thing you love most about Jesus? I can tell you what you better say. The sprinkling of his blood that is better than that of Abel. That's what it says in verse 24. What we find is our devotion is not to the angels, but to where they are, heaven, God, the things that are divine and holy, to that general assembly of the Old Testament saints, to the judge of all, God the Father, to Jesus, or to the just men who have gone on to glory, to Jesus Christ himself, and then finally to the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it intimately personal, our devotion. And when he is writing this, he's saying to us, look, all of those things are great to love and all of those things are great to long for. But the thing that we will enjoy for the rest of eternity is that our conscience has been purged by the sprinkling of his blood. Amen. Oh, what a devotion. And if you can't get excited about that, if you can't be heartwarmed about that, if you can't really say a hallelujah or amen at that, you got a problem. When we come in prayer and communion to God, this is the progression. As we enter in time of communion, in our Bible reading, in our prayer time, yes, it is with our Father, and yes, it is with and through the Spirit of God to our Savior, Jesus Christ. But that innumerable company, that general assembly, that judge of the whole earth, those just men, they are all there present in heaven, watching and listening and partaking. And when you tell me I don't have time to read my Bible or spend time with God, I say to you, shame on you and your devotion. Shame on you.
I say the same thing to me. I say it in love, but I say it in earnest. The path of consecration takes diligence, it takes devotion, and finally it takes discipline. It takes self-denial to listen to God speaking to you, friend. He uses preachers and teachers, and if you open your Bible, He will use the Spirit of God to guide you into all truth. The temporal things of this world of man's wisdom, according to verses 25, 6, and 7, can be and will be shaken. They will ultimately be removed. But God's eternal truths cannot be, for He's God. The discipline that we must show is towards the eternal truths. So often, we show great resiliency and discipline towards temporal things. Now, there's some temporal things you should show discipline. You've got to pay your mortgage, okay? <laughs> you have to pay your debts. You have to work if, you know, to provide for your own. All of those things are good. But the eternal truths is what we should be living for. The eternal values. He concludes that the path of consecration leads us by God's grace in verse number 28. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God. God's grace leads us to being able to serve God in a pleasing fashion, that is acceptably and with proper respect, that is reverence and godly fear. For everything we do in this life is wrapped up in God. He is, after all, a consuming fire. Literally, when we get saved, the Spirit of God, who was a flaming fire of tongues upon the apostles in Acts chapter 2, He comes to indwell us. He is that consuming fire burning within us. Now, you may tamp down, you may try to quench and put out that fire, but that fire of the Holy Spirit will always burn within you. When he says he's a consuming fire, he's not talking about burning up the world someday. He's talking about burning up you today. He wants to be used by you. You are his fuel, literally, on this earth. He is a consuming fire. And if you will let God consume you, you will do great things for him. You will serve him acceptably in a spirit of reverence and great fear. By the way, living and thinking this way takes great discipline. It means capturing every thought and bringing it into captivity so that you, like Paul, will not be a castaway. In closing, the questions this morning are simple. How is your journey on Christ's superior path? Well, he has a better life for you than the one you had before him. People that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior wander through this life wondering what they're supposed to do. Christians know. We're to walk the path of Christianity. We're to live it with all of our effort. In that pathway, there is both chastening and consecration that is ours to live. Have you begun the path, the Christian path, I should say? Have you begun to walk or journey on that Christian way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh, no one enters in by pathway. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. Have you begun or known the chastening path, Christian? Maybe even this morning as I was preaching, God said, here's something. But, but Kyle, you didn't really preach on it, so I don't need to answer it today. <laughs> Behold the chastening of the Lord. <laughs> Let his spirit work. The final question is, are you willing to walk the consecrated path? If so, it takes diligence, devotion, and all of your discipline. It's then and only then that you can be holy, holy for God. And I mean that in both ways.
Father, help us, I pray, as we close.